Morrison's election budget misses the point as Liberals expose who he really is, COVID making a comeback, and good news about wind turbines. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your host, Ben Davison, and joining me, as always, is the ever-delightful, the magnificent, wonderful disinformation expert and author of Two and On and On, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults, Van Badham. How are you, Van? Hi, Ben. I miss you. I know. I miss you, too. We will be together again soon. But be- This is really hard. I know. But before we get to see each other... The good people of Newcastle will get the opportunity to see you before I do. They do. The good people of Newcastle will be able to see me on Sunday at the Newcastle Writers' Festival uh, where I'll be talking about disinformation, uh, which is, of course, my favourite topic. And I really hope if you are in the area or visiting beautiful Newcastle, one of my favourite places on earth, that you come and say hello. And, yes, I will sign books even if you have already bought them and loved them. So... (laughs) Yeah, that's this weekend. I'm really looking forward to it. That'd be fantastic. And uh, I will be doing a video on the pod, uh, sorry, on the job podcast uh, with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg, which uh, we'll record at some point this week to talk about the budget and hopefully we'll go to air next week. So looks like we might only get to see each other on video for a little while yet. Yeah, it's pretty funny, isn't it? The, modern oh, film, isn't it? the world we live in, Ben, the world we live in. Look, there's lots lots of people in the same boat and uh, I know many of the people who listen to this podcast have emailed us and messaged us on our Buy Me A Coffee supporter page, uh, which you can check out at buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday. There's lots of messages there from people and we really we appreciate all those messages of support because we know lots of people are doing it tough. And, of course, in northern New South Wales uh, right now, they're dealing with floods again, Van. Lismore has flooded again. Again. Is it an emergency yet? Have the government decided it's an emergency yet? Are we going to actually acknowledge climate change yet or are we going to cut money from climate mitigation strategies in the budget, Ben? What do you think? Well, I can tell you for a fact that the Morrison government has cut investments in climate mitigation strategies. So, of course, the budget was handed down last night and it was really a budget designed to try and win an election, not to build a nation. It's fair to say that there are lots of sneaky hidden cuts, some headline-grabbing cash splashes, and some devil in the detail. And let's talk about the climate side, Van, because this is where there are 35% cuts over a period of four years. Now, to put that into real numbers, that's $2 billion next year, then $1.9 billion the year after, $1.5 billion the year after that, and $1.3 billion the year after that, cut from the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, Direct Action Emissions Reduction Fund, and the Great Barrier Reef Resilience Program. 
cut. Oh, I mean, thank God that's not a priority or anything. Thank God there's not a another coral bleaching event affecting the Great Barrier Reef, a completely irreplaceable part of the living world, renowned for its beauty and its specialness, its distinctiveness on the Australian coastline, and not to mention a major source of economic activity around tourism, hospitality in Queensland. I mean, thank God that's not happening. Oh, no, wait, it is happening. There is another coral bleaching event. Lismore is totally underwater. We are still unprepared for fire season. Like, do you know, Ben, as everybody who listens to this show knows, I love trees and I'm a sucker for a cute animal. You know, like I am absolutely dotty about the birds in the trees and the bees in the hedges and the rest of it. But I would really love to talk about something other than the environment. Like I really would. I actually did a degree in theatre and poetry. I'd really like to indulge in those particular parts of my education in my life. But there is an environmental crisis and I'm just finding it extraordinary that Australians who are supposed to be doing other things with their lives are obliged into this ongoing climate advocate and warrior role because the people who actually have the job of ensuring the joint doesn't burn down are cutting money from the budget. Well, Angus Taylor, the minister responsible oh, for God. this area. Angus Taylor. He, he says that there is new spending on energy and emissions reduction, $1.3 billion of new spending. But, you know, we've gone through this in detail. I've spent a lot of time this morning going through all of the, all of the claims that are made and, and the information that's available. And about half of that 1.3 billion is outside the four-year projections. So, not this term of government, not the term immediately after the next election, but sometime beyond that term, there might be 600 million. There's about 600 million in the next four years, which is all earmarks going to liquefied natural gas, hydrogen, and other gas infrastructure. So when he says it's new spending on energy and emissions reduction, I'm not sure the word reduction is the bit that should be there. I think maybe that word's a typo. Fantastic. Great move. Well done, Angus. Well done, Angus. So look, Van, there's lots of stuff in the budget and really it it misses the mark. Fundamentally, it, it has failed to deal with the problems that Australia is facing. First and foremost, the crisis of wage stagnation and wage cuts. There there are budget forecasts where the government acknowledges that the Australian people will have another cut to wages. And I say another because in the last 18 months, wages have gone backwards by $1,300 for the average worker in this country, $1,300 in the last 18 months. Over the course of the next 12 months, Workers will lose another thirteen hundred and fifty-five. That's by Morrison's own admission. That's in his budget papers. And for people who are like, I get my money, my pay packet paid into my account every week. The number hasn't changed. It's because the cost of living is going up. It's because petrol is more expensive, and power is more expensive, and groceries more expensive, and everything is more expensive. So when we talk about a pay cut, we're talking about in real terms. You have. $1,300 going missing from your pay packet if you are in the bracket of the average Australian worker. So great. Fantastic. Absolutely. Can Hey, Ben, remember mm. how the Liberals ran like about a million bazillion election campaigns about their superior economic management? 
Do you think that was about <laughs> superior economic management for the average Australian worker? Or do you think it was superior economic management for the kind of vampiric capitalist bloodsuckers who prey on government contracts for vast amounts of unearned wealth? Well, I think, Van, it's absolutely for the second because there are, of course, baked into the budget substantial tax cuts for those on the highest incomes to come into play from 2024, 2025 and beyond. So this budget didn't do anything about changing any of that. What it did do, and there's been a lot of media coverage here, uh, is increase the one-off now in its third year uh, low and middle income tax offset. Now, uh, you know, I, I, I'll come to that a bit more in a minute because I really want to focus on the wages piece here because it is fundamental to the economic management question. The, the economic management question is how do you increase wages, increase productivity, and increase living standards? And if you can do those three things, then you don't increase inflation and thus create uh, a situation where money becomes worth less more quickly, uh, and you actually have a better society, you have a better economic environment for society to flourish. Of course, nothing in this budget does that. There's no no policy around the minimum wage, even though minimum wage submissions are due on Friday. And for the record, New Zealand is increasing its minimum wage by 6%. There is nothing in here about increasing wages in the public sector which we know have gone backwards even faster than the private sector. And of course, as we've discussed before, public sector wages are a lead indicator for private sector wages because if you can get a job in the public sector uh, that is something you believe in and it pays decently, why would you take a job for one of those blood-sucking corporate capitalists who treats you like dirt? So of course, the government has done nothing about that. And at the same time, they're predicting inflation will continue to increase, getting at around 5% by the middle of this year. At the same time, they're cutting, they're cutting jobs, cutting jobs out of the public sector. Nearly 10% of the staff from Services Australia are being cut. So all of the things that are in the budget around wages are actually negative towards wage growth. They don't support wage growth. There's nothing in there that increases the bargaining power of workers. In fact, they reduce the number of public sector workers. They reduce the number of the wage levels for public sector workers. They're increasing inflation. They're making it harder and harder and harder for working people, which brings me back to, well, how then is this an election budget, Ben? Well, because there's a bunch of cash being handed out to try and distract everybody from that point, Van. Uh-huh. And it's obviously in that low income, middle income bracket, brackets, they're going to give people up to $1,500. Now, this is obviously it depends on how much you earn and so on and so forth. But again, there's some devil in the detail here, right? Yeah, of course. Of course. Because the detail is that this one-off tax cut, which has now been extended for a third year, is due to end and will end after the election. Now, that means that for lower and middle income earners, in the next financial year, 
they will see a tax increase of anywhere between sort of two and three percent, and on average, it'll probably be about two and a half percent tax increase. At exactly the same time, and this comes back to your point, that the high income earners are getting what was called the stage three tax cuts that people might remember from a few years ago. Just as those are kicking in and high income earners, high income households, the very wealthiest people in Australia are getting $10,000 a year tax cuts, the lower middle income earners, people earning minimum wage, earning average wage, earning median wage, will be paying 2 to 3% more in tax. That's the real story of this budget. Whatever the spin is, and there's some detail we'll get into about cuts and all the other nasties that are hidden away, but fundamentally, this budget is set up to make our society less equal, less fair, and does nothing to address the wages problem and the job security problems that are driving the inequality uh, and the cost of living pressures that people are facing. Yeah, no, absolutely not, because they don't care about them. I mean, this is this is the thing. This is what everybody needs to observe and appreciate, that that's, that's just not what the Liberals see their priorities as being. I, it, the problem, we're living through a very interesting historical moment that rather definitively uh, in, in numerous countries, in Western democracies and Eastern autocracies, demonstrates the very the powerful danger of what I would describe as getting high on your own supply. When neoliberalism was introduced to Australia in the 70s by uh, Malcolm Fraser, and he was the first neoliberal, he was liberal prime minister of this country, and he was the first neoliberal and started setting up the economy for the changes that followed, cutting the public service with a razor gang, you know, trying to demonise public servants and uh, oppress their, suppress their wages, the kind of big departmental cuts that went mm. on. That was what was happening in that period. We were all told that this was going to enable this incredibly, you know, prosperous transition of wealth through the mechanism of what we now know is trickle-down economics, that, you know, that you would take the restraints and the restrictions off business and then business would make so much money that it would flow to everybody else. Like this is what we were told. Like it was always nonsense. It was always nonsense. We knew it was nonsense because similar economic policies of letting business do whatever the hell they want had resulted in cyclic depression culminating in the Great Depression and the misery and rise of extremism and poverty and death that that brought about. So we know that trickle-down economics doesn't work. Like we know that, but this was a propaganda line. We'd had 30 years of Keynesian prosperity in the wake of the Second World War and the adjustments to um, economies that had gone on there. Yeah. And... I mean, this is this is the thing that the capitalists always knew it was a lie. They always knew it was a lie. It was about maximising their profits at the expense of everybody else, smashing unions, destroying the public service. You know, creating arbitrage opportunities to provide essential services by convincing government not to provide them and securing monopolies. I mean, that's how prices. And I think, Van, one of the points you raise there about smashing unions, it's it's absolutely part of it, right? Because you know there are nearly 2,800 jobs that are going to be cut from the public sector. The the money that was supposed to go into creating more jobs to clear the backlog of 
veterans affairs claims, there's no guarantee that will create any jobs. And we know public sector workers are more heavily unionized. And we also know, by the way, that whatever industry you're in, if there's a union in your workplace, you are more likely to have secure work. You are more likely to have higher wages. There is a wage premium that unionized workers get. This is one of the reasons why you know, some in big business and the neoliberals don't like unions is because the workers are better off with unions. And, and that's why we always say on this show, join your union. Go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W. You can join your union right now. The unions are out there campaigning on all the issues that are in the budget, you know, whether it's aged care, higher education, uh, arts funding, uh, the the uh, wages obviously is a big one, public sector workers, you know, this unstitching of this neoliberal paradigm is absolutely vital, Van, isn't it? Because it, yeah, it just- I want to get back to my original point. Yes, you should absolutely join your union. You would be crazy not to. I know we say it every week, it's our thing, but it is literally the most direct mechanism for you having as an ordinary working person any say in the economic decisions around you at all. But I want to get back to my point about being high on their own supply. They believe this stuff. Like they have started to believe that literally their entire conception of economic management exists in this paradigm of, oh, we'll just make conditions more favourable to business. We'll make conditions more favourable to business. Business will sort everything out. Business will address the gaps. Business will fix it. And it's like if business could fix it, Lismore would not be underwater. If business could fix it, would everything be on fire? Like it's the... It's the zealous it's the zealous belief of the liberals that that they insist that they're doing an economic good job because you know they can still afford their homes in Brighton and their Aspen holidays and the rest it's, of it. It's also it's also Van telling that the head of the Business Council of Australia last night, you know, after the budget was on the ABC, saying that we did need more government intervention to help raise wages, to lift productivity, to lift skills, and to lift wages. And, you know, there you've got Jennifer Westacott, the head of the Business Council, representing the biggest corporations in Australia, and Michelle O'Neill from the ACTU, President of Australian Unions, you know, fundamentally at one level, um, obviously in different, varying in how you get their kind of approaches, but agreeing that wage growth is required for good economic management. And at the same time, this budget does none of that. It, it actually fundamentally undermines wage growth. Oh, but we've had the um, the RBA saying this for years. The RBA has been saying we have a wage suppression problem in this country since before the last election. From memory, they may have even said it before the Turnbull election in 2016. Like these structural problems with the economy are there and they are really biting families. If you were $1,300 a year worse off this year and you're looking at being an increase, like an additional $1,300 off in the next, I mean, these are massive problems and they impact spending, they impact investment, they impact literally everything, let alone quality of life. And yet Morrison has the temerity in Frydenberg to be like, oh, well, you know, you can't trust Labor with the economy. It's like 
mate, I would trust a clown to run the economy, a professional clown with with more responsibility to the Australian people than mm. I would trust you. I would trust a can of sardines in my mother's pantry. I would say, you, give it a go, the trillion-dollar budget. I don't think you could do worse than this mob because this is just ridiculous. Like you and Van, you make a good point there too, because you know, out of fifty-five budget and mid-year financial economic outlook statements and various economic statements, official economic statements, out of fifty-five of them, the Liberals have gotten them wrong fifty-two times. Fifty-two times they have got the level of wage growth wrong. Oh, but business will take care of it, Ben. And and but here's the here's the kicker. This is what occurred to me, right? So they're now predicting that real wages won't be back at 2019 levels until 2025. So effectively, we're in for a lot of household pain. At the same time, in the same time, Van, they're saying that household spending will grow by 5.75 percent by 2024. Now you go, well, how can you do that? Like, how, how does the Morrison government expect that to happen? Are they going to give us more money next budget? Is there more money? No, no, no. There's no more. It's not about them giving money. What they're predicting, what they're banking on, what they're budgeting for is that the Australian people will spend half, a full 50% of all of our savings between now and 2024. In the course of the next two years, we will halve the amount of money we have saved in this country. That oh, is right. right. So this is based on oh, clearly demonstrable facts and it's just a coincidence that during the pandemic they made superannuation balances available to be drawn out against. This is very interesting because I'm trying to get the logic that you would say Australians have no money, therefore let them let them pay for their own lockdown, the cost of lockdowns through their own superannuation, but also all of these savings that they have now are going to get the economy out of trouble and make sure everybody's fine. Yeah, that sounds really logical. It sounds like there's some really consistent analysis going on. It's a really... It's a really neoliberal budget, and it's an election budget. Like, let's let's be frank about this. You know, they have front ended eight billion dollars worth of extra spending uh, into the budget. They've put twenty billion dollars into the regional hubs. Somebody, I think it was Laura Tingle, said last night um, that we all wondered what it was that Morrison had given Barnaby Joyce in order to be allowed to say net zero by twenty fifty. Well. Last night we found out it was $20 billion. Uh, $11 billion of that is for four regional hubs, which are all encompassing seats that the National Party either must hold or win from Labor to, to uh, keep in government. And random a random number of $2 billion for regional jobs is sort of like that's not a policy. It's not a budget Rich line. Jobs doing what? It's not clear to me what what that, industries. It, again, not clear. Not Budget clear. What? Again, none of none of this is very oh, clear. Who? Even even the even the infrastructure money, which by the way, Morrison government has never actually spent their full uh, budgeted infrastructure amounts. Only twenty one of the hundred and forty four projects that are announced in the budget 
uh, were actually recommended by Infrastructure Australia. So the independent body. out of 144, yeah. meaning that there are 123 infrastructure projects that don't exist within a framework of what Australia actually needs or what should be prioritised. Am I correct? Yeah, and that will actually increase the productivity of the Australian economy. That's what so Infrastructure Australia is for. And 23 electoral boondoggles. One can imagine we're going to be getting what, like, you know, like a, a harbour redevelopment of Lake Eyre, presumably, or, you know, like towers across the Olgas, maybe a, a magic superhighway from from Brighton to, um, to Collins Street. Oh, it's just... Well, it's the waste of this government. I think I said this last week. Like, there, we've made the point, you and I, there is no problem with government spending money. That's what government should do. There's no problem with government spending more money they have. If you can service the debt, it's good money to spend. If you are increasing productivity and enhancing the life of your citizenry, that's great. But if there is an absolute, like, just habitual practice of this government, apart from saying or doing anything, lying, cheating, cajoling to stay in power, it is their willingness to set money on fire. 123 infrastructure projects that have not been recommended within a framework. Fantastic. Can we, and let's let's focus in on this because there's one piece of the budget here that I know will you know everyone will go oh thank god they've done something about petrol prices because what they've done is they've halved the the tax effectively the excise on petrol for the next 6 months which means of course again whoever wins government has a loaded dice of having to increase the cost of petrol by 22 cents a liter uh, almost as soon as they become the government uh, or just around just before christmas now that's going to cost three billion dollars. That's three billion dollars. It's going to cost, and quite frankly, you know, we might see some short-term immediate relief because you know you take the tax off. And theoretically, the price goes down, but the price of petrol is effectively anchored to the price of oil, and the price of oil has been going up before the war in Ukraine, before Putin went to war, it was going up, and now. It's gone up hugely since Putin went to war in Ukraine, and it continues to fluctuate up and down. So theoretically, theoretically, the price of petrol will be cheaper than it may otherwise have been. But the actual saving to to you and me and their neighbours and people down the street and anybody who gets in the car and drives might actually vanish. Now, that $3 billion... And this is the point of the Commonwealth, right? And it goes to the point you were making. Could have been used to do something productive that enhanced the lives of people. Instead, it's being used to offset some of the cost of fuel. Now, I I know people are struggling. We've talked about the fact that wages have gone backwards. But this is a short-term sugar hit, which will cost $3 billion if you don't drive, it, it's not going to impact you. It's not going to reduce public transport fares. And of course, it doesn't deal with the systemic issue of needing to transition away from fossil fuel-based transportation anyway. It's it's an absolute attempt at electoral bribery. You know, that you've got the the four point one billion worth of 
uh, one-off tax cuts again, one-off in its third year, uh, and there was another thing as well: the two hundred and fifty dollars that is being given to pensioners uh, and people on social security payments in April. Again, there's sort of this half acknowledgement in the budget that people are doing it tough and the systems aren't quite working. But rather than fix the systems, there's this sort of hope that a small amount of money will make people forget that the system is broken. Yeah. And, and, and at an individual level, $250, yeah, it'll help people. It'll help people for a week or even a month in some cases. But when that money runs out, the systemic problem will still be there. High oil prices will still be a problem. You know, the high grocery prices will still be a problem. Rising medical costs will still be a problem. And none of the systems will have changed. <laughs> it's, uh, it, you know, it, I really, we just encourage people to think about what this is and see it for what it is. And that is an attempt to basically buy their way back into office. Ben, do we want to talk a little bit about some of the cuts? Because there's not been a lot of discussion about this in the media. And I know a lot of the people who listen to The Week on Wednesday like hearing us talk about things that often the mainstream, other, other media outlets or mainstream media, if you call it that in inverted commas, doesn't talk about. But there's a lot of cuts built into this budget, isn't there? Oh, yeah. Um, they've totally savaged the arts community, hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and this obviously comes from the school of what I call the they don't for us, they don't vote for us anyway politics, where, you know, the government, the same government, I just want to put this into context, um, cutting the tax on fuel actually costs Australia's bottom line $20 billion. $20 billion in revenue is not going to the government because of this tax on fuel that may not actually lower petrol prices, but in order to you know, give their whole we're such responsible economic managements uh, managers shtick another retread, um, they are hacking money from all kinds of places. So we're losing hundreds of millions from the arts budget, which is just sickening, right? So we have these social problems in Australia. We have this specifically the issue around gendered violence. And, you know, Frydenberg in his press club today was like, oh, you know, we're doing something about gendered violence. Well, I've sat in a lot of the policy rooms that discuss how do we deal with the problem of gendered violence? How do we deal with, you know, the abuse and exploitation of women? And every single one of those rooms says, well, obviously we need to address this problem culturally. We've got to foster like a, a culture of different values. Um, we have to stop, you, you know, repeating old messages about male entitlement, the ownership of women and, you know, the, uh, and the demidified, I think is what I'm looking for, status of women. And we need a cultural program to do that. Now, I'm trying to work out how you actually affect cultural change without investing in cultural industries. Yeah, I've, well, I, I, I don't know. But I do know that next year they've cut $140 million out of arts and culture, $140 yeah, and that's just like I'm, I've been in the arts my entire working life. Like it is a very low-paid industry. It is one of Australia's three lowest-paid industries. Obviously, 
massively oversubscribed with female workers. What an incredible coincidence. And $140 million cut, that's just job loss. That's opportunity loss. That's, you know, families barely surviving who will now be obliged to seek employment elsewhere. That's the reality of that cut. So so there's that and taking apart a cultural apparatus that might actually be useful to solving some of the problems. Um, we've had another massive cut to public schools. Public schools that exist to ensure that every Australian gets a quality education, um, that every single person, no matter what your station in life or your experiences, will have the same opportunities. So goes the theory half a billion dollars gone. At the same time, Ben, there is uh, an extra $2.6 billion going to private schools, which of course don't have the mission of serving the, you know, equity and participation of every Australian. They're exclusive private institutions uh, and not everyone has access to those. So, I mean, that's another feature in the budget that stuck out to me. Um, obviously, yeah. we have the issues around climate mitigation. We're not getting any more aged care workers, as far as I can tell, Ben. I don't think yeah, we're no, the, the, no. the ANMF, that's the Nurses Union and the United Workers Union and the Health Services Union, have all been very, very clear on this, as was the uh, Australian Education Union about the, the school cuts, that the, the, the kind of new money, if you like, that's been announced in uh, aged care is really going to go to the pharmacy guild uh, in all likelihood. It's not. It's not going to put nurses in nursing homes. It's not going to, um, you know, result in in better standards and quality, which is really the problem that we've had in aged care. That's what the aged care royal commission kept saying. So you know there are real concerns about aged care and and higher education as well. I saw the national tertiary education union. Uh, uh, did some analysis today, you know, that funding per student's been cut by 5.4% and that between 2018 and 2025, Morrison will have cut $3 billion, $3 billion out of the higher education sector. Oh, yeah, universities, they don't like them. They don't like them. And they it's absolutely so- do not want there to be universal access to the traditional university education experience. Like this is just obvious and I just want people to grasp what this means. So Ben and I went to university. Uh, In my case, I was stridently first in family to go to university and it meant that I had that experience of having some time to think and get an education about the world and understand my place in it and become a scholar and develop specialisations. I didn't go to university in order to make more money, although I do understand that's a motivation for some people. I didn't go to university to leave my class and everything it represents behind. I went to university to learn how I could be the most effective citizen of the democracy that I live in and to channel my talents and proclivities into meaningful like thought and action about my community and the world. And that's what universities are there to do, is to create opportunities for people to actually consider what their democratic responsibilities and goals might be. And that's not an experience that the Liberals want everybody to have. The Liberals want an education system which is literally like just a certification factory where you pay X amount of money to get university broken, like an education broken down into a commodity that you consume in between all the jobs you hold down in order to get 
that certification and then you just go off into the world thinking, not really thinking about your society, but thinking about how you are a transactable commodity within it. And you can see that from attacks on academics, attacks on scholarship, attacks on research. We have a government that interferes and overrides the research grant process because there are things just doesn't want anybody to think about. And it is like it's a future bomb because the problem is if you don't give people time to think about democracy and productivity and proclivity, if you don't allow there to be a knowledge class that actually considers those issues and, and you know, what their relationship is to how our systems function and find a place within that as public servants or as health leaders or as culture makers, all the other things you learn how to do at a university, you are completely destroy your society. That's a thing that actually happens. Well, it's certainly an interesting and I think in some ways terrifying sort of set of hidden nasties in, in the budget that will come out more and more. And I noticed that Morrison has uh, turned down or cancelled his appearance on the 7.30 report tonight. And part of me part of me thinks, Van, that that's because people are, people are sharper. People are sharp onto this stuff in the budget. You know, all the spin in the world, you know, can't hide the fact that actually they've made it cheaper for temporary migrant workers to come to Australia uh, that they've increased the number of them by 30%. They're increasing um, skilled migration by 160,000 places next year, uh, but they're capping humanitarian visas uh, at under 14,000. Like there's some some real nasty little twists in there that they strike at the soul as well as the things that we do to educate ourselves and become better citizens. But they're kind of I guess systemic structural things that governments do that reflect that that sense of national soul, and and one of the things the hidden nasties that has come out is that there is three billion dollars worth of cuts in a section of the budget that's called decisions taken but not announced. Now, normally, oh, this is extraordinary. This is absolutely extraordinary. So normally decisions taken but not announced is a pot of money that the government keeps in order to pump up the tires before an election or before Christmas or at some point where they think they might run into some trouble and they've got a program in mind or they've got a project in mind and they want to fund it, but they don't want to announce it until it's the most politically opportune moment. Now, of course, when you want to make cuts, but you've got to go to an election, it's not politically opportune to announce those cuts just before the election. However, baking them into the budget means that either, A, you announce them after you've just won an election, in which case, what are people going to do? They've already re-elected you. Or B, the opposition has to announce them or explain why they're unstitching the budget again if they win government. Oh, look, I've got no problem with Labor doing that. And, I mean, this is the big question, isn't it, Ben? Like, have we all had enough? I mean, I've had enough. There are so many things in the budget that I can't even physically bring myself to look at them because I just get so angry because all I see at the end of this budget is good people who serve their community losing their jobs, people who rely on services to have any kind of quality of life 
losing those services because of budget cuts and sacking. I see, you know, guest workers coming to this country to be exploited and to have no democratic rights. We know that's what happens. We've we've seen it all. I see just a ridiculous, insane transfer of wealth to people who don't need any more wealth, like to, you know, the elite vampire class of this country will be getting, you know, more of our blood from the government. And, and, you know, Scott Morrison congratulating himself on his own talent. And the thing is, I don't trust them at all. Like, I don't trust the Liberals at all. Again and again, Morrison had this extraordinary line today that was reported about how, you know, there are people who criticise me for spending money on disaster management. And somebody was like, who has criticised you? The great god Poseidon, which I thought was a pretty good line. Well, this is the thing. Actually, Scott, we've been criticising you because you don't spend money on mitigating things. Senator Murray Watt from the Labor Party, who's from Queensland, has been relentless on the government's case about the um, disaster relief funds that haven't been spent, that have been, you know, like off in the distance earning interest to try and cover the unbelievable black hole of wasteful spending the government have led us into. Like, and it was just another Morrison lie. We just hear lo- actual lies from him. Like the Hillsong lie you and I talked about the other day. Oh, I haven't been Hillsong in 15 years. There's a video. There's literally a video from 2019 of him standing on stage, hand on heart, hand in the air, familiar gesture, with the wife, you know, singing and the Brian praises. Houston's hand on his shoulder. And yeah, yeah. Houston's hand on his shoulder singing the praises of Hillsong Almighty. It is heretical, disgusting, lying, hypocritical filth. That's but, what it is. They are a putrid government and, and I don't trust them. Anything positive they say, I do not trust. Their capacity to manage Van, anything. Van, Van, can I just say, you're starting to sound like you might be a member of the New South Wales Liberal Party. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely had that joke in, weren't you? Because you, you've, you've, you've given the segue of all segues here because – Liberal Senator for New South Wales, Conchetta Ferravanti-Wells, has absolutely opened the lid and dumped on Morrison's leadership. You know, so for context, Senator Ferravanti-Wells did not get a winnable position on the New South Wales Liberal National Senate ticket. Factional Um, warfare. Clearly she was bullied by the mean boys. Total factional warfare. New South Wales Liberals are absolutely at war with each other right across the state. Morrison has used Alex Hawke as a bit of a stalking horse. Uh, There's lots of accusations that Alex Hawke has deliberately delayed party processes in order to give Morrison and the national uh, branch or office of the Liberal Party the excuse to intervene and take over. Just so everybody, I don't expect any reasonable person to know who Alex Hawke is. Um, no. Alex Hawke is Mike Carlton referred to him as Scott Morrison's consigliere. He's an MP for a um, for a North Shore seat in Sydney, very safe, safe, uh, very safe yeah, huh. Yeah, very safe liberal seat. I'm yes. not sure it's the North Shore, but it is. He is in a safe liberal seat, and he was he was under threat. He has been Morrison's uh, described in various ways as Morrison's factional face, Morrison's factional hatchet man. Yeah, he's Northwest. My apologies. He is Northwest. Uh, he's the member for Mitchell, and yeah. I was actually on Q and A with Alex Hawke, which is an experience. 
That's um, right. But he's the bag man. He's your he's your backroom numbers dealing mean boy um, for Scott Morrison. Um, he's the one who told me. Sorry, I have to mention this because I love it so much. Uh, he was the one who totally overrode two hundred years of rather considered um, scholarship and thought on the issue of the relationship of Christianity to socialism, and told me I could not be a Christian and a Marxist, which I'm sure was not only news to the current Pope but also to Jesus and uh, then, um, you know, claiming he was a religious man, uh, mentioned that, of course, he doesn't go to church (laughs) or read the Bible or do any of the things that generally are identified with worshipful practice. So thank you for judging me on the conviction of my religious beliefs uh, derived through worship and faith community, Alex, but he's the bag man and he has been um, involved in organising the factional operations that support Scott Morrison and give him a power base in New South Wales. And, well, it's all going a bit to hell, isn't it, Ben? It's quite remarkable because not only is Alex Hawke, was Alex Hawke under threat in his own seat, so was Trent Zimmerman, so was Susan Lay. And, of course, Morrison has these people uh, very much either in ministries or certainly positioned to give him numbers in, in the caucus. So this was not something Morrison was going to allow and this thing has dragged on and on and on. And here we are on election eve and as you and I are talking, my understanding is the New South Wales Liberals are in the Supreme Court of New South Wales um, having a fight about who is allowed to make pre-selection decisions and under what circumstances. But that will play out over the next few days. That may be part of the reason why Morrison doesn't want to go on ABC 730. The other part of it may well be because Liberal Senator Conchetta Firavanti-Wells, whose name I apologise if I'm saying that wrong, um, doesn't really have any recourse. Her her pre-selection, you know, there was some discussion about people being locked out or whatever, but fundamentally she's done, she's over. If she's on the ticket, she's a long way down it. I just I want to make the point unambiguously that Conchetta Ferravanti Wells is a hardline conservative oh, and yeah. what we would refer to technically in political science terms as a right wing monster. Yeah, not someone who I think I, I can't think of a single thing I've agreed with her on. Um, but she has said these, these are the things that she has said in Parliament about Scott Morrison that he, he has used his so called faith as a marketing advantage. Morrison is not interested in rules-based order. It is his way or the highway, an autocrat, a bully who has no moral compass. I have received hundreds, if not thousands, of emails outlining their disgust. They have lost faith in the party they want to leave. They don't like Morrison and they don't trust him. Our members do not want to help in the upcoming election. Morrison is not fit to be Prime Minister. There is a putrid stench of corruption emanating from the New South Wales division of the Liberal Party. Now, this, you kind of go, oh, well, look, you know, she's unhappy and she's lost pre-selection, so, of course, she's sort of saying things. But there's a bit of context, isn't there? I'm just looking at some other things that Scott Morrison's pals in the Liberal Party have said about him. So, uh, of course, Malcolm Turnbull, former Prime Minister, uh, until Scott Morrison stabbed him in the back, of course, uh, was quite clear. Morrison has a reputation for telling lies, I think we all know, especially President yeah. of France. Um, 
uh, a bully who has no moral compass. That was obviously our friend Conchetta. Uh, he was described as menacing and controlling by Julia Banks, who, of course, was driven out of the Liberal Party by bullying. Um, and, of course, there was the anonymous Liberal Cabinet Minister who referred to him as a complete psycho. And I seem to recall Gladys Berejiklian was quite uh, critical of Scott Morrison as well. Yeah. Called him a horrible, horrible person. Yes, um, a horrible, horrible person, you know, um, bullying, controlling, a liar. Man. Ben, and, and it's can I? I just want to add here too, Barnaby Joyce, who again, you know, on his own, you would question the merits of many of the things Barnaby Joyce says, but he called Morrison a hypocrite and a liar. He has admitted to it. He offered his resignation as Deputy Prime Minister over it. There is mounting evidence from ministers, from the Deputy Prime Minister, from premiers, from Senate leaders that Morrison is a bad person doing bad things. A bad person running government badly doing bad things. A bad person doing absolutely nothing with all of the power enfranchised in him by election from the Australian people to, you know, to mitigate our problems and to take action on our behalf. Not doing it. They're not doing it. And like one of the, one of the things. New floors and dressing up like a hairdresser but not actually doing the work. But one of the things that he's supposed to have been doing that he that he has again dropped the ball on is rolling out the booster program. And Van, I want to I want to talk about this uh, before we run out of time today. When I we've spent a lot of time talking about the budget, but to to really nail home the point, COVID is making a comeback. You know, New South Wales is flooding. Lismore is being evacuated. We're, we're seeing COVID clinics and COVID testing sites shut down in northern New South Wales because of the rains, because of the floods. But at the same time, we're seeing a spike in cases, hospitalizations, deaths. 30 people died today from COVID, 30 people. That's now, higher than it was in September last year when yeah. we were in the really long, desperate lockdown in Sydney. Yeah. Now, the booster rollout has been slowing down across the country. The Guardian does a really good uh, graph on this that shows when the rollout, when the booster was supposed to be rolled out by for each state and the change over the last seven days. Over the last seven days, the time it's going to take has been extended. That means it's slower. That means that in places like Queensland, they're not going to get to 90% boosted until late July. Victoria and New South Wales, not until mid-May. The Northern Territory not until October. Now, this is terrifying because at the same time, in the budget, Treasury has predicted that there very well may be a more virulent strain of COVID and that we are likely to see the kind of conditions that we saw in January happen over a more extended period in the middle of the year. That means Thousands of people in hospital. Keep in mind, we already have thousands of people in hospital. There are 1,300 people in hospital in New South Wales today with COVID, 280 in Victoria. There are 51,000 active cases of COVID in WA. 10,000 of them were from today. The numbers are going in the wrong direction, both in terms of cases, both in terms of hospitalizations, both in terms of death, but also in terms of the rollout of the boosters. They can't do it. It is beyond them. 
they do not have the leadership depth to manage the very most basic job of national government. They cannot do it. And, you know, it's really interesting glancing the parallel reality that the Murdoch press live in, and, you know, because I do occasionally, I, I allow myself to glance at sky headlines if only to imagine what it must be like to live in their incredible world of fantasy and delight. And, like, the Murdoch papers have been going on with this idea that Daniel Andrews, the Premier of Victoria, who literally, you know, like almost physically sacrificed himself in the service of the state during the pandemic, Um, they have convinced themselves that the, the loss of the Liberal government to Labor in the South Australian election means that Daniel Andrews is somehow under threat for re-election in the state of Victoria and that the Liberals are a real chance. The same Liberals who were saying that you can't have poor children live in Brighton because they can't afford the sneakers, like that, that Liberal Party. And I'm just like, do you not think that maybe it's a problem with Liberal values? Yeah. That we're facing these massive collective problems require collective solutions and you can only countenance collective solutions if you have a collectivist ideology, I mean, I don't want to be weird or anything. True. But, but Van, it's is- also it's also telling that that they're running that line as both Dan Andrews and the Liberal opposition leader in Victoria are both in isolation, and the Liberal opposition leader has complained about having to go into isolation. So Dan Andrews has gone into isolation. You know, his his family is in in lockdown because he's got COVID. Members of the Liberal opposition leader's uh, family have COVID, so he's had to go into lockdown. And he's gone on radio and complained about having to go into lockdown, complained about having to not being able to go to the pub and that we're all experts now in COVID and we should be able to do whatever we like. You know, it's that kind of thinking. It's that kind of mentality that that is seeing the booster rollout become another stroll out, that is seeing the BA2 is now 70 percent of cases, 70 percent of cases are the new variant. You know, the, the, the Liberals just don't have the capacity. As you say, they don't have a collective set of values. No, they don't. And I would, they and I would don't argue, And I would argue that the lack of leadership shown by the Marshall Liberal government in South Australia is repeated in the Liberals in Victoria, is being repeated by the Liberals in New South Wales, both at a state and federal level with Dominic Perrottet and Scott Morrison, and that people are sick of it. We're sick of having New South Wales liberal ideology, which is to to quote a liberal senator from New South Wales covered in a putrid stench of corruption, run our country into the ground. We've had enough. It is amazing. And, you know, for people who are like, well, doesn't this mean that the Liberals, like are you saying that Liberals were always like this? Well, how do you explain? Menzies being in for 23 years and the rest of it. And it's like because previous Liberal generations, so the Liberal Party forms in 1948 from the scraps of all the other Conservative parties, comes a unified movement, whatever. But they were World War II veterans. And that generation of Liberals and the generations who, the living generations that came through that experience, learned the fundamental lesson of catastrophe is whoever collectivizes most effectively wins. You know, that's how the West won and the West and our Soviet allies won the Second World War was that we maintained cohesive collectivist organisations when we were under existential peril. 
that's actually how you get out of that that's how you survive by the way everybody who loves watching disaster movies and ben and i and post-apocalyptic dystopian stuff and ben and i always have this little laugh to ourselves like literally every sociologist will tell you whoever is capable of forming the town and the city and the society is the one who survives the the community that survives the catastrophe we're living in that now friends the the image of the gun wielding individualist rugged man that guy gets wiped out by 50 chicks who've found a tank well look i think we have to have some good news van because you know as much as morrison wants to pretend that the budget is all good news i think we've successfully um you know made the point there that actually it's only surface level at oh, best. Look, I just can we just repeat it? There are three billion dollars of cuts that they've decided to make, but they're not announcing. And I want you to look, I want every single person listening to this to look at the service from the government that you can't live without, whether it's NDIS support or, you know, whether it's age pension or or public health care or any of those things that you rely on, state school. You know, like a government job that you have. And I want you to understand that there are three billion dollars worth of cuts that could fall on any of them, but you're not being told. It's pretty outrageous. Oh, well, it's sickening. It's let's talk about let's talk about the good news because there is good news about recycled wind turbines, isn't there? Well, yeah, this is happy news. So uh, the issue with wind turbines is that they're made out of various polymers and things that haven't been recyclable. So, and the other thing is wind turbines actually have a pretty heavy duty job to do because, you know, they're generating the kind of power that doesn't get us killed uh, and they do over time wear down. And there have been all these various schemes looking at repurposing uh, the blades yeah. Um, of wind power, of the wind turbines. In, in Germany, they were making bridges out of them and using them in construction and doing stuff like that. Well, General Electric uh, is part of a consortium of groups um, who've been looking at how they can close the loop on wind, tur- on wind turbine production and make it a completely environmentally neutral exercise. And they're using a really clever polymer that liquefies and can be recycled. So you have your wind your wind turbines, they wear down, you take them down, and then you can literally re-smelt the polymer that they're made out of and then put them back up again. So you can just endlessly recycle them. And it just makes me feel like I'm in Star Trek and in Discovery, which is brilliant, by the way, and we've got programmable matter. I feel like we're heading in that Yes, direction. we're getting closer. We're getting closer and closer, programmable matter. Yes, indeed. Look, that's that's fantastic news. And, you know, look, despite the government's cuts to uh, climate mitigation and renewable energy, we are going to see the world move on this. And if, as we all hope, Labor wins the next election and Jim Chalmers, as he has said, it's not about how much the government's spending, it's about what they're spending it on, if that man gets a chance to do a budget under an Albanese government, I think we're going to see more investment in renewables, more focus on the future, and a lot less. All those beautiful, beautiful climate action jobs. Fantastic. I can't think of a better way to serve your country, can you? Like, if you've ever gotten up in the morning and gone, I'd really like to save the world, like, you know, the only thing standing between you saving the world and, you know, all of us dying in a climate fire 
is literally the next election. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, look, talking of saving the world, there are some fantastic people. Obviously, lots of people join their union because they listen to this show. We get messages from people who say they've got active in their union. They've become delegates. They've they've shared the week on Wednesday with friends and with coworkers. They've discussed political issues because of this podcast. You know, use this podcast in any way you like. It is free for everyone to listen to. It is free for everyone to download. And there are some really awesome, excellent human beings who do make a contribution. They go to our Buy Me A Coffee page, buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday, and they make a contribution uh, regularly, monthly. Uh, they they make a $20 a month or a $10 a month. We also have a buck a week uh, contributors as well. But our, our cadre, our $20 a month contributors and our extending the reach $10 a month contributors, they get a shout out every week. And we've got to go through them quick because the list gets longer and longer, which is fantastic news. It means we can get the message out to more and more people. And I have to say, I've got a sneaking suspicion, Van, looking at the numbers before we started recording, that this episode will push us over the top and March will be a new record month for downloads of the week on Wednesday, thanks to, in no small part, these people. Our All right, I'm going to do it. Are you ready? Let's go. Thank you to our cadre, Leona Gibbons, someone, Christina Cole, Richard Sands, I am not on Twitter, Glenn, Robbie, Brash Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Diana Byton, Lee Archer, Linda Cartwright, Leanne Shingles, Louise Moran, Donna Chapman, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan, um, Susan Myers, uh, at Kerry Nash 20, Billy 3, McCabe, Cara and Will Robinson, Narissa Simon, at Katagal, Lauren and Ash, Matthew Hadley, at Narunga Man, John Sharpen, Peter Barth, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, also known as Red, White and Blue Lou. Extending the reach. Can we just acknowledge Stuart Munn, Erica Pizzuti, Claire, Joe, Joe Lupino, Steph, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Pauline Bake, Nandita Hannon, Bill Collis, Moira Louise Hawker, Megan Wickett, Graham Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Belinda Bravo, Sandy Honan, at Galvest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, wise, Sarah, and Katie, Bo Sullivan, Eliane and Andrew, Ibis Billet, Jennifer Berkeley, Andrew Bryan, Tamara James, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Keir Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Buncombe Basher, Katie Ward, at The Real Never Long Body, Sandy Bonegut, also known as at Not Sandy B, Melody Patterson and Renee McGee. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Your contribution means that we can advertise the show, get more people to listen to it, and also keep the show free for um, for our peeps we love it we think it's the best it is fantastic another big shout out for on the job the official australian unions podcast our good friends francis leach and sally rugg do a fantastic job with that they're launching a video podcast they've done their first video podcast um francis has asked me and sally has asked me to to come on the show so you will get to see my ugly mug on video uh if that's something you're into he lies. He's the handsomest man you've ever seen. <laughs> Normally they have really excellent articles and news uh, with workers and workers' representatives about what's happening in the workplace. So, you know, even if you don't tune in to see me, do tune in to see those stories because they are really, really important. Uh, I'll be tuning and- in. I could look at him all day. <laughs> and, of course, do check out all of our social media uh, do check out all of our social media channels because we will be promoting various other things that we're listening to, watching. Van's got a number of appearances to talk about 
disinformation and the book QAnon and on. Yep. The best I'm, seller in every format. Reminder, now. I'm doing the Newcastle Writers Festival. I'm also going to be down in Castlemaine doing an event there. I'll put all this on my social media, but, you know, pay attention. Um, I'm also coming back to Adelaide to do a women in media event. I'm going to be um, – all over the place promoting the book and you know if you like bring a book I'll sign it wherever I am and if you're interested in have me speaking to your organization about disinformation or my book or any of the other wacky things I do drop us an email and that is the week on Wednesday it is absolutely the week on Wednesday I miss you terribly I miss you too, darling. It's been a really rough few weeks. It really, it really has. I'm sorry. I'm so angry, everybody. I'm just like, I'm just done with the Liberals. I'm just, yeah, I'm like, yeah. I have complex things going on in my own life. Can you please run the country? Like. Yeah. Yeah. And, and look, big shout out to the 10,000 plus union members who did run a fantastic Corflute campaign. Uh, I did participate as well on the, you know, it's not my job and the uh, Morrison abscondment. Fantastic work. The photos of that look amazing. Check out Australian unions and Vic Trades Hall and the Queensland Council Union, whichever union body you're affiliated or, or on, on social media because there's some fantastic photos. Thousands and thousands of people. They just, we do all just want a government that works. We just want a government that does the job so we can get on with our lives. Yep, that's, what that's what we want. You know, it's so funny. You hear Scott Morrison go, people want the government out of their lives. I'm like, you betcha, because you're incompetent. I want a government that is actually interested in governing so you, my friend, can go. All right. On that note, we're going to go. Love you, Vanny. Oh, I love you too. I love you. I miss Bye. you. After the dog. Bye. Bye.